Welcome to Opportunity Miami, a show about the entrepreneurs, civic leaders, and innovators who are solving the issues that will define Miami's economic future. I'm Matt Hagman. There's a revolution taking place around the world. The car industry is going electric. Mercedes-Benz by 2030 will be fully electric. Volvo is doing the same. General Motors is moving to all electric by 2035. And of course, Tesla, which pioneered the wave, has become the most valuable car maker in the world. It's an important change in the broader effort to shift the global economy to one that's carbon neutral. It's one of the five areas that must change to achieve net zero. How we get around, where we get our power from, how we produce our food, how we manufacture products, and how we heat and cool our buildings. But as this shift takes place in the auto industry, what about another industry that is near and dear to South Florida? Real estate development. How can a similar revolution be launched in the built environment? in the dwellings we live in, stores we shop in, and offices we work. We'll explore today on Opportunity Miami. Tony Cho worked as a nightclub promoter during the heady days of South Beach in the 1990s. Then in 2005, he founded Metro One Properties, launching a commercial real estate career as a broker, investor, and developer, helping propel emerging neighborhoods such as Wynwood and Little Haiti. But last year, Tony decided to make a change. He launched an effort called Future of Cities, a new organization focused on redefining real estate and community development in the post-pandemic world. In our conversation, we spoke about what it will take to see a tipping point in real estate to create truly sustainable net zero neighborhoods. Tony Cho, welcome. Matt Hagman, pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to be around you, my friend. It is so great to be with you and so great to have this conversation. And, you know, where I want to start, you know, been thinking about how, you know, automakers, and how automakers for so long, it seemed, were sort of dabbling with electric cars. You know, we had the hybrid Prius, uh, we had the Leaf, we had the Chevy Volt. And then of course, we had an entrepreneur who went all in with electric cars. In 2012, we saw the, the Tesla Model S. And then, you know, of course, then we had the X uh, and the Model 3 and the Model Y, you know. And of course, what's since happened is, is that um, it's revolutionized the industry that Tesla is now the most valuable automaker in the world. Meanwhile, Elon Musk has become the richest person in the world. And all of the incumbents, all the automakers around the world who were so supremely confident in their approach uh, are all changing. One after another are setting deadlines when they want to move for, to having all of their cars sold electric. And I share that um, and thinking about the built environment and thinking about real estate, a world that you come from. And what do you think will be required to reach a similar tipping point in real estate development in the built environment to see the same sort of change? You know, it's a great question and a great reference. And um, I've had the great pleasure of meeting Elon a number of times and getting to know him. And he's a truly an innovator. And I think I'll point back to him as a reference because I think what he's working on with Tesla solar tile roof, which I have on my retreat center and disrupting the HVAC systems, which is, you know, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, cooling, um, which is the largest component of your energy bill and making your home or your building into a utility. Then I think it changes the game because when you're, when you're, when you're, your building, you know, or your home becomes a net provider of energy, then it changes the game versus a consumer. And so I think if we look at 
you know, real estate in our homes as the ability to become utilities, I think that changes the calculus and the way we look at how we invest, et cetera. And so as the cost of clean energy continues to come down and people invest more into it, I think these types of solutions will not only be make sense, but they'll be unavoidable, just like the electric cars. Look what's happening now with the, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and gas prices where they are, you know, and, and we haven't transitioned to, you know, a, a fossil free environment, but this hopefully will accelerate it because it's very clear we're still addicted to oil and we're still dependent on oil and a company that is also a net, you know, is, is a net positive producer of its own energy that exports energy as the U.S. is, we're still buying oil from other people and, you know, still haven't completely um, um, released our, our dependence on foreign oil. And so I think that's a really good example. It's all about being sovereign and being independent. I think that's where Elon specifically has demonstrated you can produce your own, you know, energy. You can produce, you know, you can actually produce your own communications and Internet through Starlink, which he's done actually in Ukraine as well, and yep. disrupt the system. So I think there's many references to Elon, you know, in terms of disrupting current models and making the old models obsolete. So, and, and, and in this case, taking something that is a consumer of something, a home consuming electricity and actually turning it into a producer of electricity. Now you share that as someone uh, that isn't theory for you, you've actually done it. Talk of you actually have a home powered by solar. Tell us about that. I do. I have the number 26 Tesla tile solar roof in the state of Florida and one of the largest in the country. It's a 44 kW system, which is a very large system. And I have a 30 bed retreat center, glamping retreat center in central Florida. And we have a lot of operations with a lot of power demands. And we are basically covering 85% of our energy uses with that Tesla solar power roof. And the only reason we aren't covering 100% or more is because I didn't want to chop down any significant live oak trees or, or, or lar large mature trees around the property to produce more space for ideal solar capture. Wow. Wow. Well, let's talk about future of cities. You know, with what we're just, we were just talking about, um, I think this is all part of the future that you're imagining with future of cities. And, and just to step back for a second. So, so Tony, you know, first and foremost, you're an old and dear friend, um, but you're someone who's had lots of success as a uh, working in nightclubs uh, as a as a nightclub promoter. Uh, this is before you and I knew each other, but uh, you shared before uh, to being a very successful commercial real estate broker and executive to being a very successful real estate developer. But then you now you're choosing another chapter uh, and that's future of cities. Uh, why and what is it? Matt, I think I'm sure you we crossed paths when I was a nightclub promoter. I don't think you like to admit that part of your life, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you spend a few late nights out, out there, you know, maybe before you were married or maybe. <laughs> I think so. I think you might be right about that. though. <laughs> but um, so I, I like to think, you know, I'm going to be 44 this year. I got started in, in the in the. Uh, in the, in the professional world, pretty young, you know, at, at basically 18, 19 years of age, when I moved to Argentina and I decided not to, 
uh, I, I basically dropped out of school and I needed a job because my parents, my mom cut me off financially and said, you got to figure it out, kid, if you're not going to go back to college. And I was just very defiant and very determined to be independent and self-sufficient. And that led me to an opportunity at one of the, the top nightclub lounges, restaurants in Buenos Aires at the time. And when I came back to Miami thereafter, I had the skills and the connections. And, you know, this was 1998 in South Beach. This was the heyday of Versace and Madonna and kind of everything that was happening that back then. And it was truly a magical era. You know, it was Tony Goldman and Craig Robin, Robbins doing, um, you know, um, historic preservation on Ocean Drive. And, you know, I got to witness that magic moment, you know, a place in time in South Beach and, you know, became a nightlife personality and traveled around the world and got to participate in incredible events and met incredible people. And then I got my real estate license. And, you know, once I got my real estate license, I saw how easily and quickly, you know, you could create, you know, uh, financial wealth. And, you know, I knew that that was just a means to an end and, and uh, that I would really want to do something that's more creative. I've always considered myself a real estate artist and a creative. And so, you know, it gave me the resources and the inspiration to start investing in emerging neighborhoods and downtown and Wynwood and Little Haiti and design district. And you know, I bought my first apartment in 2001 in Biscayne, Con Biscayne 21 condo right next to uh, with the now Paramount and where the Performing Arts Center is. And that was before the Performing Arts Center was announced. And as soon as wow. the Performing Arts Center, which is now the Arch Center, was announced, I, you know, I bought this condo with $9,000 I had saved from nightlife and a, a, and a, a loan shark had, from Hialeah had loaned me the money at 11%. And I bought it for 66000 And then a year later, after the Performing Arts Center was, was announced, I sold it for $180,000. And I had, I had this big aha moment. And I realized how art and culture impacted real estate values in positive and negative ways. And that was kind of the precursor to my involvement in Wynwood, the Wynwood Arts District Association, the Business Improvement District, which I was a co-founder of. And then it kind of led me into this whole pursuit of, you know, supporting independent brands like Zach the Baker and Panther Coffee, et cetera, and launching Metro One, which became a staple, you know, in those emerging neighborhoods. And, you know, what I'm most proud of is that we've completed over $3 billion worth of transactions, but all non-institutional. Most of our leases were 1,500 square feet, 2,000 square feet. And those independent small businesses are the lifeblood of main streets of these creative districts. And so that was kind of my evolution. But then when I took a few steps back of seeing the success, the explosive success of Wynwood, you know, and then getting involved in Little Haiti through the Magic City Innovation District and other investments, I saw the negative impacts of successful real estate projects and how they would gentrify or push out the creative class and the artists and the innovators that really were the life and soul and blood of those neighborhoods. And it was disappointing to me as someone who grew up in an intentional community and someone who had been in nightlife and part of that community, that was my background. And so, you know, I really just wanted to figure out a way where I could be involved in shaping and creating neighborhoods and impacting cities, but doing it in a way that, that had a positive impact for 99% of the population, not just the 1%. You know, sure. ways that we could elevate the underserved communities 
you know, the black and brown communities of America, got involved in opportunity zones. And so I conceptualized this concept of the future of cities, which aims to impact the lives of a billion people through innovations in the built environment. Huge, big, audacious, you know, goal. Um, but it's not that we are going to build projects for a billion people, is that we, through our network and our think tank, are going to share an open source best projects, best practices, you know, demonstration projects from around the world and concepts like rewilding cities and uh, regenerative placemaking that is now starting to take root all over the world. And it's already starting through our activities. So we're already having a big impact and we're seeing people reusing our terminology and frameworks in projects all over the world. So it's starting to already have an impact and uh, it's really exciting. So let's let's talk about some of those pieces some of those pillars uh, of future of cities and and one of them is you talked about regenerate regenerative placemaking regenerative development tell us what that is so regenerative development has been around for a long time and it's really about the health and well-being of an entire ecosystem not just human well-being but the well-being of an entire ecosystem of a place so whether it's a city or a suburban space or a rural place is how healthy are the rivers and streams? And, you know, an example in, 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 in Miami is how healthy would you think that Biscayne Bay is? And sure. Biscayne Bay, we know, is, is, is going through a major difficult moment right now. Acidification, you know, uh, agricultural runoff, you know, algal blooms and all that stuff. So that's a symptom of how unwell Miami is as a city overall and we're the most susceptible to sea level rise. So while we're thriving on the one end, you know, in certain aspects, we're failing on the other end environmentally. And so when you look at a holistic approach to development, that's, that's what regenerative development is. You take environmental, social considerations into financial considerations. Some people call it ESG, some people call it impact investing, but that was the forefather precursors and mothers to regenerative development. Regenerative placemaking is following in the school of thought of, you know, the Tony Goldmans of the world and other people who have placemaked, you know, Soho and Williamsburg and South Beach and the Pearl District, and all these places that we recognize, Wynwood, but really doing it in a way that's regenerative and it doesn't use the artists. It doesn't use the culture or, mis or, or culturally, um, misplace the the people that were there and Wynwood, it's the puerto ricans in little haiti it's the haitians and the caribbeans so the idea is not to gentrify or to integrate or to mitigate the gentrification that happens when a new group of people come in with their own ideas about what a cool hip trendy cool neighborhood is you know i'm sure you know the puerto ricans who were in Wynwood before the private equity firms from New York that are now developing the buildings had a different idea of what that neighborhood would look like. Sure. And, and I'm, sure, I'm sure the same thing in Little Haiti of, you know, the hipsters coming in now from all over the world of what their vision is of place. And so who are we? It's kind of a, it, it's getting away from the neo-colonizing nature that, you know, that, that, you know, European descendants and Americans have. When we go into a place, we say, you know what? this would be a great place for Ritz-Carlton or for a golf course. Well, guess what? Maybe the Native Americans that lived there before had a different idea of what was for that place. And maybe the, the Haitians that are in Little Haiti. So it's about being respectful of place 
and respectful of the environment and doing it. And if you go through a different process of, of thinking about how you create a regenerative development where it's very participatory, very inclusive, and there's a process of deep listening that happens before you just go ahead and develop whatever it is that you individually think is needed for that environment. And is that sort of the, the core takeaway? Um, is just that you know, this is a concept and approach, but in terms of how it really lands and in terms of doing a, a development, um, the way you see it in practice is just that deep level of engagement or is it other things too? It's, 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 it's beyond that, you know, it's beyond just, I think that's step one is really, yeah. is really just listening, you know, and learning, but there's, 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 there's so many more aspects to it. You know, part of it is obviously, you know, biophilic design, you know, designing with nature in mind and how are you going to do this in a regenerative, sustainable way? You know, part of it, like we said, is being, you know, energy and, and information, uh, sovereign, so being able to produce your own energy, being able to deal with your own waste, being able to, um, you know, also make sure that you're creating environments where all the residents and the members are thriving. So there's a component of social impact that is a very key uh, driver of regenerative placemaking. And are there examples as we think about this as you and I are, are right now sitting in, in Miami. The, but, and as we think about bringing these principles here, are there places around the world that we can look to as doing this well or starting to do this well? Yeah, we've actually just published a little white paper with our partners, Dominique, Dr. Dominique Hess from the University of Melbourne. And we did a study on the city of Auckland, you know, that cool. was suffering from 20 years ago, was suffering from a depressed economy, declining public health. Um, you know, and short-term self-centric viewpoint called Auckland disease. Now, a decade later, with a tenfold increase private investment, public transport patronage doubling every year, is strengthening its social and natural systems. Auckland's embrace of regenerative placemaking principle has resulted in this remarkable transformation and the recent recognition as the most livable city in the world. We have a white paper on it, you know, in our, on our website in Future of Cities. And that's what, you know, we try to share and places like Medellin, Colombia, and how they've connected disconnected neighborhoods through public transportations and how it's really created, you know, a thriving city and really being an example. You know, I think there's several components to uh, regenerative placemaking. One is living, living systems thinking. So this is really thinking about the whole system and not just thinking about, mm. you know, an independent building you know you're not just building a building that's independent and self-governing it's part of a larger system and how do you do this in a holistic way and then number two it's trans transdisciplinary knowledge exchange so it's really focused on consulting with everybody to gain significant ideas and better solutions you know that's that's a big yep. component. That, that's that's a very big component of it biophilic and sustainable biophilia and sustainability practices Obviously, that's you know key and 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 a cornerstone of of anything that we're doing, making it as inclusive as possible. So rigorous, inclusive in, engagement is kind of a fourth component of it. And people don't do that well, and it's not that easy to do, you know. And it's very difficult. People, developers in general, try to avoid having large groups of input and people, and feel that it's going to you know slow down or stymie their project. 
when really if you get the community behind and you design, you co-design with the community for their best outcomes, you're going to see how much support you get and how much accelerated um, uh, approvals happen if you do it in an authentic way, not just to, not for tokenism. And right. you, have, you have to be authentic. You can't be buying votes, you know, and sure. it's just a new paradigm. Take us into the future a little bit. Talk to, and I know you said it, this is not about trying to prescribe the future, um, but instead to help us, you know, collectively realize that future in each of our own neighborhoods and communities. Um, but talk about some of those innovations that you think that we'll see. Is this, is this a world where, you know, communities over the next 10 to 20 years that it's, you know, car charging networks across neighborhoods, solar roof, just like your home at uh, where you have solar panels on the roof, uh, vertical farms uh, atop grocery stores. Give us a peek into that future that you think that we're heading towards or that we should aspire to head towards. Right. Well, there's the hardware and the software. I think you just looked at some of the hardware, you know, yep. the streets, the roads, the infrastructures, which, you know, we know that we're going to be 3D printing roads and bridges pretty soon in the next coming decades. We know that there's vertical farming that's happening here. We know that we're going to have autonomous vehicles within the next decade. That's going to be a reality, which is probably going to make parking garages obsolete. We know we're going to have drone transportation. Those are all kind of the you know, the, the Tron futuristic Jetsons ideas. And I don't want to be prescriptive, but, yep. you know, from what I hope in, in my prayer is that irregardless of the cultural and historical context of a place that should be unique, I've always been passionate about a place needs to be unique and different than any place. When people said to me, you know, when I was in Wynwood and started investing and in, 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 in spending time in developing in Wynwood, they said, is Wynwood the next South Beach? And I said, I hope not, because it's gotta be unique if it's gonna be successful. The same thing with Little Haiti. They always ask me, is Little Haiti the next Wynwood? I said, I hope not, because it's gotta be unique. And each of those neighborhoods are unique, and that's why they're successful, because of their uniqueness. And we have the opportunity now to reinvent the built environment because over the next 30 years, the built environment is going to double or triple in size. I'm going to repeat that. Yeah. Everything that has been created up until today for the last 10,000 years, 50,000 years that human beings have been, you know, building stuff will now be recreated two to three times over. So we have the opportunity in a very short condensed period of time to disrupt everything. So I tell developers now, and I've turned down multiple projects where people are like, come and invest. It's a two, three X and you'll make money. I'm like, but what are we doing to change the game? Is this a game changing project? Because I'm not investing the next five to 10 years of my life for the status quo, because by 2030, if we're not making net zero buildings, we are screwed. <laughs> And to flip that, it also those who start creating net zero buildings, your thesis is is that those will actually be the most successful buildings, that those and will be the ones resilient. Wait yeah. till we have a if you build a, a building today that can produce its own energy, recycle its own rain, rainwater, you know, that's healthy inside for the residents. And we have a major storm, which we know is going to happen in Miami at some point. Let's not deny it. We've been here right. for a long time. And the only buildings that are unscathed and that are still producing their own power. I lived in South of Fifth in 2015 when we had Wilma and all this stuff. The, the rest of Miami was out of power for a month or two. And that was a very mild storm. 
And south of Fifth, the power went back on in two days because they had wow. underground power lines. It just shows you, you know, it's sure. like, you know, and there's, we know data, the IPCC report from the UN shows us how severe the climate events are going to increase over the near term. And we can either put our heads in the sand or we can prepare for it. And yeah. like you said, those who prepare will be rewarded very handsomely financially. That's all I can say. So a couple quick questions just to, to wrap up. Uh, number one, just to sort of to, to center people on the work of Future of Cities, talk, talk briefly about sort of the three pillars of the work, think tank, et cetera. So the first year, which we're now, we were, we're about to celebrate our one year anniversary on Earth Day this year, um, was really focused on the think tank activities, the work that we did at the UN, COP26, publishing our white paper, you know, developing our board of advisors, our strategic partnerships, really establishing it, you know, as a reputable organization doing good in the world around the built environment. So that was phase one. Phase two was really identifying places where we could do a dem demonstration project to show what regenerative placemaking may look like in practice. And we've now assembled a really nice project in Florida. I can't disclose where we will yeah. disclose in the next, which is in an opportunity zone, which will be our first demonstration project. And there's several others that we're consulting on in other countries and other places as well that we'll be able to talk about when they're further along. So that's our idea is to demonstrate, not to talk about it, because the first year was talking about theory and what we're thinking about and testing. Now it's about testing that theory in real in real life and in real time. And, you know, we're also contemplating working in the metaverse as well for future of cities where we can prototype some of these ideas with tokenization of real estate and real assets and prototyping these ideas of regenerative placemaking in the metaverse. So we're working on that as well. And then the third component is the venture capital ecosystem and the venture fund that's focused on prop tech, smart city technology, construction tech, you know, material science space where we can invest, where we already have invested in those companies, you know, 3D printing companies, you know, material science companies, prop tech companies. You know, we invested in Dance, which is a mobility tech company from the founders of SoundCloud. We put together a portfolio of companies that are providing solutions that are going to accelerate the regeneration of our urban cities around the world and accelerate them through our partners, through our think tank, through our demonstration projects, and through, through our network around the world and really raise a fund. So that's going to be the next step of what we do. So it's three legs of the stool. You know, you have the think tank, you've got real estate, and you've got venture. And to me, I think that that's, you can't, you can't take technology out of anything these days. And you can't take the important work that you have to do in the academic side and the theoretical side, but you've got to demonstrate. Last question. So, uh, you know, it's so often in this space, we talk about 2050, because of course, that's the time that scientists identify that if we don't reach net zero, that the planet will warm to a level where really bad things will happen. Um, but let's think about the year 2040, uh, which is, you know, for the kid coming up today, that's the, the moment in which that, you know, that they'll be readying to enter the workforce. Um, and you look at your 2040 self, now that you're here one year into launching this effort with Future of Cities, in 2040 and looking back in the work that you did to build the cities that you think that we need in the future, what do you hope to find? 
So great question. And, you know, our the work that happens in the next eight years is going to determine actually if we have a 2040 or a 2050. So the amount of progress made in the next eight years is fundamental and critical to the success and, and survival of our civilization. It's no secret why Elon is working on civilization, interplanetary civilization. It's not because he doesn't like living on Earth. He doesn't believe he believes there's a strong trend you know, chance that we can self-destruct or that some external, you know, uh, event will, you know, extinct us, you know, whether it's a comet, a meteor, solar flare, nuclear, many different, you know, dystopian scenarios could unfurl. However, um, if we're, you know, assuming we don't have any of those external issues happen and we are going to achieve sustainability, you know, I, I see over the next eight years, this trend of sustainable and regenerative development accelerating very quick. I mean, what I've seen in the last year has been absolutely exponential. And what we are going to see in the next three years, five years, I think you're going to start seeing things happen much quicker and people are going to get much more serious. Unfortunately, I think events and crises are the only things that are going to wake us up as a civilization. And so, you know, natural disasters and human crises and refugee crises that are going to continue to increase will hopefully wake us up so that there's a rallying call, but we can mobilize faster than we've ever mobilized before because of the pandemic. You know, now you have granny and new, you know, very young children who are all connected via the internet all over the world. And as soon as we democratize access to the internet, the whole world, you know, through things like Starlink and other will be connected to the internet. And if everybody chooses to make a decision, you know, and vote for the, the future they want, that can happen instantaneously. That was never the case before. You see the images coming out of Ukraine. This is the first time the whole world has been aligned, you know, together, unified for the most part, you know, against a, a despotic regime like Russia. And it's really amazing the power, you know, of the collective now that we're connected in the way that we've been connected. So if we use that for good, we can really accelerate. So we need to achieve a point where every new building by 2030 is being built net zero, because if not, we won't achieve net zero by 2050. So the infrastructure and the groundwork, and you and I know how quickly eight years passes by. That's a flash in the pan. That's super quick. So, you know, my push to really get this done is 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 urgent i'm sounding the alarms and I, i'm one of the people who are like people call me a whistleblower you know in miami that i'm like telling people to do this but i'm like why are we waiting i said what are we going to wait till we have a huge category five hurricane what are we going to wait until you know we reach 1.5 degrees celsius and say well maybe the scientists were right i would rather do the right thing over invest or invest accelerate investment and my dream as we talked about on the unrealized dinner was that, you know, I would love to see Miami as the poster child for climate solutions. Where are the climate tech VCs? Where are the climate tech funds? Why are they not here? Why is there not a bigger presence? I call, my call to action is come here, make Florida your home, make Miami-Dade your home. It's a beautiful place that's at risk. And it's a place where we can, where we can uh, prototype solutions rapidly right on the front lines of climate change and sea level rise. Wow, what an exciting moment as you're 
as Future of Cities gets underway. Can't wait to see what's next. Can't wait to see the demonstration project where you put all of these ideas you're talking about into action. Tony Cho, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Places have transformed its built environment like Miami has over the last 20 years. One wonders what's possible here the next 20. Thanks to Tony Cho and thank you for joining us. Please follow us online and across social channels and we'll see you next time on Opportunity Miami.